We are here at the, uh, the fifth chapter of Nehemiah, and I've got to pick up the pace. So the way we do things here at Ascent is I preach through books of the Bible most of the time. Uh, from time to time, I'll do a topical series. But most of the time, uh, I'm, I'm taking a book, and I'm just trying to plow through it. Uh, but I'm going way too slow in Ezra and Nehemiah. It took Nehemiah 52 uh, days to build the wall, and we started this series in January of 2021. So it's taking us longer to preach through the story than it took for Nehemiah to literally build the walls. So with that being said, I'm going to leave a lot on the table. Chapter 5 is full of good things that I could draw out that would be helpful for our church family, but I've got to just pick one. I'm going to try to lay out the whole theme of the whole chapter, uh, but I'm just going to pick one of the themes to focus on, and that theme is the theme of... Money. Money is a huge thing that happens here in Nehemiah chapter 5. Now, when we think of money, we often think in two categories. We think of, uh, it depends on whether you're rich or whether you're poor, the way you think of it, but some people who are rich will often think, well, poor people are poor because they're not virtuous, they don't work as hard as me, they're lazy or they're foolish. Uh, and poor people, poor people will often look at rich people and say, well, rich people are evil. All rich people are evil. And what they mean by that is people who are richer than them. Uh, because in our country, we're actually the top 1% of wealth, but we tend to look at people who are richer than us. And you'll always find somebody who's richer than you. A millionaire can feel poor when he looks at Bill Gates and his billions of dollars. Uh, but really, neither are true. It's not as simple as saying rich people are good and poor people are bad or vice versa. There's godly poor people and there's ungodly poor people. There's uh, godly rich people and there's ungodly rich people. It's what you do with the money that God has given you and how you earned that money. And what we see in Nehemiah chapter 5 is we see an example of ungodly rich people. But we also see an example of a godly rich person. We see an example of godly poor people. And I want to jump off of that and show you kind of what ungodly poor people look like. For some of you, it's going to feel like I'm stepping on your toes. I'm not trying to step on your toes. This is why I preach through the Bible, because I would never preach on Nehemiah chapter 5 if it were not for the fact that it comes right after chapter 4. Next week, we'll be in chapter 6. Chapter 6 is not about money. You guys might enjoy that some more. But I think it's the sermons that we don't enjoy that are the ones we probably need to hear the most. So uh, I want you to stick with me. I'm going to give a quick kind of overview of what happens throughout the whole chapter since we're not going to be able to preach on the whole thing. Uh, and then I'm going to pray and then we're going to talk about these different categories of people. Now, we've we got to remember what happens in Nehemiah chapter 1 through 4. Nehemiah is called to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall and he begins to face opposition. Now that opposition is all external opposition. It's the kings of other kingdoms that are attacking him. And as Christians, we ought to expect the kingdoms of this world to be hostile towards us. Why? Well, because we preach that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And so that is a threat to the powers that be. And until the, the threats, uh, until the powers that be see it not as a threat, but they see it as Psalm 2 sees it, where they lay down their own crowns and they worship the king of kings, there will always be a hostility towards the Christian faith. But we need not worry. Why? Because God is in control. And so as Paul says in Romans 8, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Our threat is never ultimately against external forces. The threat that we see in Nehemiah 5 is the threat that will destroy churches. It's not what the government does or does not do. It is what happens actually inside the church. The greatest threat to the church is an internal threat. It has always been that way and it always will be that way. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 5 verses 14 and 15. He says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. In other words, the church can become like a snake that eats itself. 
Well, we devour each other because we're looking out for our own interests instead of looking out for the interest of our brother or sister in Christ. And that is exactly what is going on in Nehemiah chapter 5. The nobles are not very noble. They begin to take advantage of the people of God. There is a famine throughout the land. And instead of the nobles giving some of their money to help their brothers, their sisters in Christ, and I know they're not in Christ because it's the Old Testament, but they're looking forward to Jesus and we're looking forward to Jesus. So they're Christians too, in a sense. But they are not looking out for them. Why? Well, because what they're doing is they're taking advantage of them. They say, we'll give you a loan so that you can buy groceries. And these loans carry interest rates of up to 40%. They're destroying the people of God. It had gotten so bad, as we see in Nehemiah 5, 1 through 5, that some of the people had to sell their own children into slavery. Can you imagine? You're being so poor that the only thing you have left is to sell your children into slavery so that you can feed some of your other children. Enough was enough, so these people cried out to God and they cried out to Nehemiah. If this problem wasn't fixed, there would be no wall. It would end the progress of what God was trying to do. They were robbing, not just from the people, but they were robbing from themselves. Because when we are not generous, we are devouring the promises of God. That's what we looked at last time we were in this text. Now, we've already covered the activities of verses 1 through 5, so let me just briefly give you what happens in the rest of this chapter. In verse 6, we see Nehemiah's response. He is angry. Some of you think, oh, Christians don't get angry. Oh, Christians get angry. Jesus comes and he flips over tables. He calls his enemies a bag of snakes. Jesus gets angry and Nehemiah gets angry. And you should get angry sometimes. Angry when you see the people of God being taken advantage of. And that is exactly what happens. He has a righteous, slow kind of anger. In verses 7 through 13, he publicly rebukes the nobles. And he asks them what kind of example their actions are leaving for the surrounding nations. He tells them that he hasn't abused the people, Nehemiah that is, and that they shouldn't either. He commands them to give back what they have taken. Nehemiah even prays a curse over them. Did you notice that? He said, if you guys don't obey this oath, I pray that God would empty out your pockets. Oh, that's mean, Blake. It's the Bible. Get over it. In verses 14 through 19, we see the following. The king had appointed Nehemiah as the governor over the course of 12 years, but Nehemiah did not use it to his advantage. There's a lot of money that could come with being the governor, but Nehemiah said, no, I'm not going to burden the people. And because of the fear of God, Nehemiah behaved differently in this than did the previous governors. Neither did he abuse his position as the leader on the work of the wall. Despite having a large household, Nehemiah, because of the financial bondage that the people were under, still did not take a draw on taxpayers' money. Imagine that, a politician who says no to taxpayer money. I know it's a fantasy, but just imagine. For all this, he asked God to think upon him for good. That is what happens in chapter 5. You guys are experts on chapter 5. Now let's look at the theme of money. But first, let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much uh, for all that you have given us. And Lord, I do pray that we view it that way. I pray that if we are uh, Christ followers in this room, we would understand that everything we have is from you. The question is, what should I do with my money? That's not the question. The question should be, what do we do with God's money? Because all that we own and all that we have are really yours. And we are just stewards of it while we are on this side of eternity. So God, help us be wise stewards. Jesus, it is in your name that I pray. Amen. Thomas Aquinas, uh, which was a theologian in the 14th century, has uh, a story about him uh, that might be true, might not be true. But it it goes that Thomas walked in and he saw the Pope counting money. And uh, the Pope looked at Thomas and he said, Thomas, no longer can the church say that silver and gold, we have none of thee. And Thomas looked at the Pope and with a kind of a quick response, he said, yes, that is true. But also we can no longer say rise and walk. 
In other words, there was a trade-off that happened. Yes, the church has all this money, but we've lost some of the power that came with it. And that is what is so dangerous about money, is it can distract us from what is really important. Uh, in pastor school, they teach you to watch out for the three G's. You've got to watch out for these three G's because they'll destroy your ministry. It's the girls, it's the glory, and it's the gold. These have made a lot of pastors fall. And not just pastors, it's made a lot of Christians lose their mind. And what we see in this text is the gold portion of that. That we can get so envious and so greedy that it destroys the work of God in our lives and in the church community. And we must watch out for these. Now, we do not believe that money is the root of all evil. You might say, well, the Bible says the money is the root of all evil. It does not say that. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Can money be the root of evil? Yes, but it's also the root of every meal that you eat. It's also the root of charitable contributions that we make. Money is the root of a lot of different things. It's your heart posture towards the money. You might have a lot of stuff or you might not have very much stuff. That doesn't actually tell me much about how faithful you are to God. We want to avoid two ditches as Christians. There's the poverty gospel, which says you're not a good Christian unless you've given everything away and you have nothing. That is not what the Bible teaches. But we also want to avoid the ditch of the poverty or the prosperity gospel, which says you need more and more and more. And if you just pray more and do the right things, then God will bless you financially. And that is the sign of your blessing is your financial success. Neither are true. And we must avoid both of them. This text lays out that the rich are to live with open hands and the poor, this is a big one, are to receive with open hands. The Christian life is one where we, mu- we both must give and receive. For some people, giving comes naturally, but receiving is not something that comes naturally. Some of you are very good at giving to others, but you will never ask us for help because you're embarrassed or because you don't want to be a burden on others. Both are equally sinning. If you have a need, you ought to ask the church. And if you have money to give, you ought to give so that you can be there for the needs of other people. In this text, we're going to look at four different categories. Those who are rich for ungodly reasons, rich for godly reasons, those who are poor for ungodly reasons, and those who are poor for godly reasons. So let's jump in. Let's talk about the rich for ungodly reasons. Uh, These are the nobles that we see in Nehemiah 5 that aren't very noble. Now, the problem isn't that they are rich. It's how they are going about it. Number one, they got rich by disobeying God's law. The law of God is very clear that charging interest to someone who has borrowed money from you so that they can buy groceries is wicked. If you want to look these up on your own time, we see this in the law of God in Exodus 22, 25, Leviticus 25, 35 through 37, Proverbs 28, 8, and Psalm 15, 5. You do not ever give somebody a loan for their groceries, especially if they're your brother or sister in Christ. You give them the money if you have it so that they can eat. There's nothing inherently wrong with being a businessman, but there is something wrong when I am using uh, the trials of somebody else as a business opportunity. That's why these payday loan places are literally from this uh, pit of Satan. They, they take advantage of people at their most vulnerable time, and then they, you go in there and you get a loan to buy groceries, and you have a 40 to 50% interest rate. And this is what is happening not on the outside, but this is what is happening in God's community. Now, we can apply this to ourselves, Because did you get what you have through disobeying God's law? And you say, no, of course not. I'm an honest person. And I would say for a lot of people, it might not be you, but a lot of people will disobey the command of lying to get what they have. And here's what I mean by that. Well, everybody in the oil field lies about their hours a little bit. I mean, yeah, of course, I only work 40 hours, but the company owes me. So I'll put 45 or I'll put 50 hours. Now, that might be what everybody in the oil field does. But that's not what you do as a follower of Christ Jesus. 
Why? Because you go about your money in the honest way of going about it. Now, you might not be in the oil field, but I'm sure that this applies to you in some way in your job. There are ways in which you can lie. You can get the truth kind of a little bit fuzzy so that it benefits you. We ought not do that as Christians. That is an ungodly way to come about our money. So number one is they were disobeying God's law. Number two is they got their wealth at the expense of the poor. You've got to understand this about God. He is a God of abundance. And the way a lot of us view money, and this is why we take advantage of people, is as if it is a big cake. I don't know, chocolate cake, because chocolate cake's delicious. Uh, You can imagine. My favorite cake, if you ever want to buy me a cake, is strawberry cake. Uh, Every time I bring up food, I just like to digress a little bit, because then you guys bring me good gifts. So I like strawberry cake. So we'll pretend it's a huge strawberry cake. And that's the way a lot of people view the wealth in this world. And by that, I mean they think there's only a little bit, and we've all got to get our, our own. So if I get a big piece of the cake, that means that you have a smaller piece of the cake. And that's why some people will say, you know, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, which can be true. And it is true in an environment in which people take advantage of one another because they see it as one big cake. That's not how the Bible sees money. The Bible sees money as a seed that goes into the ground. And guess what happens when a seed comes up out of the ground? It creates a tree that has what? More seeds. There is more abundance. As my wealth rises, there is a way I can do it, God honoringly, and it will raise the tide for everyone. The United States of America is actually a great example of this. The poorest people in America live ten times better than the richest people in third world countries. Why is that? Well, because there is a mindset of abundance, or at least there used to be a mindset of abundance in this country. So you do not have to take advantage of people to get your wealth. But why do we do so? Because we're greedy and we're impatient. So we begin to take what isn't there. We begin to take what isn't ours. But we ought not be like the nobles. We ought to work hard and be patient. Do not be like my dog, Bella. Uh, Bella just had puppies recently. She's got five puppies and uh, she's a terrible mother. Uh, I've just come to that conclusion. Very bad mother because she doesn't want to breastfeed her children anymore uh, because their teeth hurt. And so she'll bark at them and growl at them. But when I try to give their puppies puppy food so that she does not have to do this anymore, guess what she does? She growls at her puppies, jumps over her puppies, and eats all of their puppy food. This is what some of us look like, right? And what Bella doesn't understand is that I'm trying to help her. By giving her puppies puppy food, I'm trying to lessen her own burden. And she would be far better off if she just ate her own dog food and let her puppies eat the puppy food. But she's dumb, so she does not do it. Friends, do not be like Bella. There is enough for everybody. Work hard. Keep your head down. Go for it. Produce something that the world wants to buy, and there will be enough for you, and there will be enough for other people. You don't need to take advantage of people. So that is the rich for ungodly reasons, and we could look at several others, but I want you to see that it's possible to be rich and ungodly, but it's also possible to be rich and godly. Just because somebody is rich does not mean they are ungodly or unvirtuous or outside of the will of God. We see a great example of this in the life of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was very wealthy. He had this high position of the governor, and before that he was the king's cupbearer, which was a huge position. He was very wealthy, and yet he does so in a godly way, and this is what we all ought to aspire for. If you are a teenager here today, and you're in high school, and you're thinking about your career, you're thinking about the future, you want to be like Nehemiah. You want to be somebody who works hard and honors God, and I want you to get rich. I want you to get stupid rich. You know why? So that you can give this church a lot of money. We can build an awesome building. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding, but I'm only slightly kidding. I want you to get rich because I want you to work for the sake of God's kingdom. 
And we need people to buy Bibles. We need people to send missionaries. We need people to build buildings like this so that lost people can come and find Christ Jesus. It is not something to say, oh, I don't want to be rich because that might be ungodly. No, there is a godly way to be rich. And you do so like Nehemiah does. Number one is he was generous. Look at verse 10, Nehemiah 5.10. It says, even I, as well as my brothers and my servants, have been lending them, the people who are hungry, money and grain. Please, let's stop charging this interest. Now, some people look at this and they think that Nehemiah is saying that he is guilty also. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying these people are so hungry and I couldn't figure out why they kept coming to me. But I've been giving and giving and giving. And it's just like this cycle that never ends because you guys keep charging interest. We're never going to get out of this unless you guys stop charging interest and join me in being generous. Nehemiah has an open hand. This is in addition to the tithe that he surely would have paid to the house of God. And now here he is with open hands and he's helping these people. We want to be like the man John Bunyan describes in his book, Pilgrim's Progress. One of the most famous Christian books of all time. You should read it. If you need a copy of it, I'll give you a copy of it. It's an amazing story. But there's this part where John Bunyan speaks of a man like Nehemiah. It says this, A man there was, though some did count him mad, the more he cast away, the more he had. And this is so true. The godly rich people I've seen in my life, that they are not close-handed, holding on to their money. They are open-handed. And the more that they give, the more that God seems to bless them. Number two is Nehemiah worked hard. He didn't come about it by taking advantage of others. He was a hard worker. Nehemiah 5, 15, it says, The governors who preceded me have had a heavenly burdened, have heavily burdened the people, taking from them food and wine as well as a pound of silver. Their subordinates also oppressed the people because they did not fear God. I didn't do this. What did he do? Verse 16, instead, I devoted myself to the construction of this wall and all my subordinates were gathered there for the work. We didn't buy any land. Nehemiah says, what did I do? I got to work. Paul says the worker is worthy of his wages. If you are working hard and you're doing so with integrity, you deserve to be paid. There's nothing wrong with that. You want to be the type of person who works hard. You don't want to be one of these people who when they're 20 years old want to live as if they've worked their whole life. No, it takes time. It takes hard work. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does. Number three is we see that Nehemiah sees everything he has, not just his money, but everything he has as a gift to be shared. Look at uh, verses 17 and 18 here in chapter 5. It says there were 150 Jews and officials, as well as guests from the surrounding nations at my table. <laughs> That's a big table. Yeah. He's got 150 guests, plus, 150 officials plus their guests at his dinner table. How many of you guys would like to buy groceries for that group of people? <laughs> Not me. That sounds like a lot of food. And yet Nehemiah has them at his table. And it says each day one ox, six choice sheep, and some fowl were prepared for me. An abundance of all kinds of wine was provided every 10 days. But I didn't demand the food allotted to the governor because the burden on the people was so heavy. In other words, Nehemiah had the right to say, Babylon, you need to pay for this by taxing the Israelite people. But Nehemiah says, no, I'm just going to take from my own wealth and I'm going to share in it. This is what we ought to do with all of our lives. Now, if you look at two houses, let's say you've got a mansion and you've got a kind of a little tiny house. You might, if I were to ask you, which one do you think the godly person lives in? You might say, well, surely the godly person doesn't live in the mansion. Surely the godly person lives in the tiny little shack. And you might be right, but you also might be wrong. Because you can be stingy with a small house, never inviting anybody in, never showing any hospitality. And you can be godly with a big mansion where you're throwing parties for the poor all the time and you're bringing church family in all the time and you're using it as a gift for God's glory. 
Friends, it's not what you have, it's how you use what you have. Uh, my, one of my grandparents uh, had a, a child die. I, I wasn't related to them, it was like a, a stepchild. But they had a child die and they were across the country. And a very wealthy person in their lives had a private jet. And the person with the private jet said, you need to be home with your family, so you get on my private jet and you fly home. Now one could say, anybody with a private jet is obviously a sin. And that might be true. But what if you have a private jet and you use it for godly purposes like that? You see, we cannot judge people based upon what they have and do not have. We judge people based upon how they use what they have. And Nehemiah used what he had wisely. Now, number four, this is the last thing we see on Nehemiah as a person who is rich and godly. He did everything for the glory of God. He lived for an audience of one. Look at verse 19. This is where Nehemiah is hoping to get his favor. Not from other people, but from God alone. It says, remember me favorably, my God, for all that I have done for this people. God wants you to prosper, but he wants you to prosper in godly means. And if you prosper, you should not feel bad or ashamed about having money and being a rich person. You know what you ought to do is you ought to praise God and use that for the benefit of God's kingdom. We have to avoid both the poverty and the prosperity mindset. I have a pastor friend who's uh, maybe a few years older than me, and he was telling me about how he started investing in his 401k at a young age. He takes a normal wage from his church. He's not living high on the hog by any means. Uh, He doesn't have any debt. He tithes to his church. He's generous with what he has. And he was telling me the power of his 401k, and he said, now, if I continue to invest at the current rate I am, when I retire, I will have $7 million dollars. Now, you might say, should a pastor ever have $7 million? Some people would say no. And I would say, why not? He's keeping his head down. He's being generous. He's taking care of his money and he's being wise with his money. We absolutely should uh, applaud people who do these things. Why? Because it's not a cake that's going to be eaten by some people. Notice seeds that go into the ground. And as he prospers, everybody prospers with him. And if you have a problem with people like that, the problem is with your theology. Because it is possible to be both godly and wealthy. Okay, so that's the rich. Ungodly and uh, godly rich people exist, both categories. Now let's look at the poor. The first category is poor for ungodly reasons. Now look, just because you're poor does not mean you're virtuous. Just because you're poor does not mean society owes you money. Just because you're poor does not mean the church owes you money. We have a mindset in our country uh, and in our culture as a whole that is very bad right now. It's this idea that because I am poor, I deserve certain things. You do not deserve anything because of your poorness, because you might be poor for ungodly reasons. And by that, I mean you might be poor because you are foolish and lazy. You might be poor because you are foolish and lazy. Now, this is hard to believe because we want to blame everybody else in our lives. Why are you broke? Why do you feel broke all the time? It might be. I'm not saying it is, but it might be because you are foolish and lazy. Uh, Some people like to say, I'm poor like Jesus. I'm poor, you know, I'm just like Jesus. Jesus was poor and I'm poor. He didn't have a place to lay his head at night. I still live in my mom's basement. Me and Jesus were basically the same person. You're not Jesus, okay? Uh, You're poor because every time you get a paycheck, you go to the casino. There's a big difference. There's a big difference in Jesus and you. The first question I would ask you is if you feel broke, are you lazy? It's an important question to ask. Here's what Proverbs 24, 33 and 34 says. It says, a little sleep... A little slumber, a little folding of the arms to rest, and your poverty will come like a robber, your need like a bandit. Sneaks up on you. Just a little rest. 
I said this to Taylor this week. I, I uh, laid back down after I did my scripture reading in the morning, and the bed was so warm and cozy, and I said, i got to get up. And Taylor said, why? You can stay. And I said, no, because a little folding of the arm, a little bit of rest. It didn't seem like a big deal at the moment. But then before you know it, boom, poverty, like a bandit, comes upon you. See, we don't like to think of ourselves as lazy, but maybe perhaps you are. Number uh, uh, two is, are you broken because you are in debt? Are you broke because you're in debt? Uh, Proverbs says that you're a slave to the lender. Some people uh, live their lives on high amounts of debt. And so it causes them great amount of anxiety. The Bible would say that is foolish. Or maybe you're broke because you're trying to outlive your money. You're trying to buy steaks when all you can really afford is a hamburger. This is another big problem for people. And it's a problem for churches too, which is why in our bylaws at Ascent, we put in there that we budget based upon 90% of the previous year's income. You know why? Because I've seen a lot of churches that get up and they say, here's our budget. It's a faith budget. Last year we made 100,000, but here's a $150,000 budget. That is stupid. So what we do is we don't stand up and say that. We say we made 100,000, we're going to budget on 90,000. Now if 150,000 comes in, praise God. But that's not how we do it. We want to be wise with our money. We want to live below our means. That's a really hard concept for a lot of people. And then number three uh, is, do you live within a budget? Do you have a budget? Uh, A wise man uh, in Proverbs, it says, knows the condition of his herds. I'm always amazed when somebody tells me they don't even know where their money went in a month. What do you mean you don't know where your money went in a month? You need to have a budget and you need to live based upon that budget. If you're the type of person that views your tax return as a savings account, I'm talking to you. I've literally had people tell me, I love overpaying on my taxes because the government saves money for me. If you ever rely on the government with your money, you are foolish. You, you need to have your own savings account and live on your own budget. Do you honor God with what you already have? Why would God give you more if you don't steward what you have already well? You know, people who get raises at work are the people who work hard. They're the people who are producing You don't get a raise when you haven't been producing. Well, the same is true with God. Everything we own is his and it's for his glory. So as God looks at you, why would he want to give you more to steward if you're not stewarding what you have now? Well, you say, well, Blake, I would tithe and I would give more to the kingdom of God if I had more money. No, you wouldn't. You would not. In fact, statistics show that the more money people make, the less they give on a percentage basis. You will not be any more wise with the money you have coming in than what you are with the money you have now. You have to learn how to manage what you have now well before you can be trusted with more money. People who say things like, you know, Blake, I just I wish I could win the lottery. I want to win the lottery and then I'd be in good shape. Somebody say to me, a lot of you guys said to me, and I love you guys. I'm not trying to judge you or anything. But when the lottery got over a billion dollars, everybody said, Blake, I'm praying. (laughs) I'm praying that God would let me win the lottery. Because if they win the lottery, I'm going to give a cent a big church building. I mean, I'm going to take care of you, pastor. And I was like, well, that's great. I mean, if you win, I would love to be taken care of. That's awesome. But that's not how God wants to build church buildings. You know how God wants to build church buildings and do his work? Through using what you guys already have. Not by winning the lottery, but by taking the 100000 or the 50000 that you make now and using that wisely. If we just used what we had wisely, we would not have needs amongst us. But like it is said in Haggai, we have holes in our pockets. Because while our houses are paneled, God's house lays in shame. Uh, and by the way, if you were to win the lottery, it'd be the worst thing that ever happened to you. Why? Well, Proverbs 21.20 tells us. It says, precious treasure and oil are in the dwelling of a wise person, but a fool consumes them. 
You will, if you take your same spending patterns that have made you feel broke at 50000 and you apply them to 250000 you're going to be in the same position. You're going to be broke. The only problem is, is you'll have more money to make bigger mistakes with. The, the bank will let you take out bigger loans to buy dumber toys with. That's the only thing that's going to happen to you. So if this is you, I love you. I love you. And I'm not calling anybody out on this. This is the part where I said it feels like I'm stepping on toes. I really love you. And the thing that you need is not more money. You need wisdom. The book of Proverbs is full of it. Uh, We're going to start small group signups in a couple weeks. And one of the small groups that I'll be leading is Financial Peace University. You need to be there. Why? Because I want you to go from the category of ungodly poor to godly rich. And I believe it's possible for everybody. Now, the final category is people who were poor due to godly reasons, and these are the people in Nehemiah 5. They do not fall into the ungodly poor category. You know how I know that? Well, I know they're not lazy because in chapter 4, uh, verse 6, it says the people had the will to keep working. They wanted to work. They're hardworking people. But walls don't feed families. So if they didn't get more food, they're going to have to go home and do something else. And they weren't unwise. I know they weren't unwise because in verse 1 it says that they listened to their wives. And a man who listens to his wife is a wise man. Amen, all the ladies said. And I'm only kind of kidding. Proverbs 31, 10 through 11 says, Who can find a wife of noble character? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will not lack anything good. Men, look at your wife. She is a good gift from God. Listen to her, and you will not lack anything good. I listen to my wife. That's just a little bit of brownie points for Blake. People in this category are poor because they are truly oppressed. It is outside of their control why they are oppressed. And if you find yourself in this category, here's what you need to do. And there are times when you will find yourself in this category because of job loss or because of health problems or because of any various things that might come your way. If you find yourself in this position, you have to ask for help. You have to ask the church family for help. Do you know why we tithe to the church? So that the church can give it back. This is what happens in Acts 2. It says none of the early Christians had any needs. You know why? Because everybody who had something laid it at the feet of the apostles. And the apostles made sure that those without uh, something that they needed had what they needed. That's what we're supposed to do. I don't want you to give to the church so we can build a huge savings account and say, Ooh, look at us. We're a rich church with a billion dollar endowment. No. If we ever have that much in a savings account, something went wrong. Because we're supposed to be giving it back. It's supposed to flow. It's supposed to be a giving and a receiving And some people really struggle with receiving. You know, they'll say things like, uh, I don't want to be a burden on the church family. But friends, you need to understand you are not a burden at all when you ask for help. You know why? Well, for one, it's a blessing. Jesus said it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. And for number two, we can't obey Jesus unless you ask for help when you need it. Here's what I mean by that. Galatians 6, 2, the apostle Paul says, carry one another's burden. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. We cannot fulfill the law of Christ if you do not ask for help when you need it. So get over yourself and ask for help. Don't go to the government and let the government steal our blessing. The church, if we did what we were supposed to do, there wouldn't be a need for welfare programs. You know why? Because we would take care of the needs of one another. But it comes from both us being willing to give when we have and to receive when we do not have. Now, if the band wants to go ahead and come back up, I'll close with this. I think the answer to both making the rich open-handed and the poor open-handed to receive comes from looking at the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those of us who are rich 
should look to Jesus' example. What did Jesus do? Well, Jesus was rich. I mean, he lived where the streets are paved with gold, and he ruled over it. That's pretty rich, in my opinion. And what did he do? He emptied himself out for our sake, so that the poor might be rich in Christ Jesus. He came as a poor carpenter, and he lived the life I could not live, dying the atoning death, paying the penalty that I owed, so that I might be righteous like him, because of the life that he lived on my behalf. If you're rich... You need to have that same posture, open-handed. Because what happens to Jesus in the end as he empties himself out? Philippians tells us he was highly exalted. It's not a piece of cake where I give and lose. No, it's a seed that goes into the ground and there's a harvest that comes from it. And if you are one of the poor who need to ask for help, also look at the example that Jesus Christ gives us. Look to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if you've accepted the gospel, the greatest gift that there could possibly be, you've been made righteous, you've been made a saint, you've been given access to the sanctuary of God's throne room through Jesus Christ. If you tell me that you've accepted that gift, then how could you not accept $1,000 from the church? How could you not accept a medical bill to be paid for by the church? I don't think you really believe the gospel. If you tell me, I've accepted this amazing, powerful gift, but I cannot accept this small gift from you, Pastor Blake. I don't think you really believe it. There's a great example of this, uh, and I'll close with this story uh, of a pastor. And he had this amazing thing happen in his church, and it was a great example of both the rich being open-handed and the poor being willing to receive. Uh, They were in a small group time together, and this single mom who had lost her husband, she was 30-something years old, lost her husband way too young. They didn't have proper insurance, and uh, she was here with three little children. And uh, all of a sudden, she went from being a stay-at-home mom to working three different jobs trying to make ends meet. And she said, I just feel like I'm spinning my wheels. I feel like I'm missing the most important part of my children's life. I want to be there with them. I want to be in their lives. And I can't be because I've got to provide for the family. And one of the members of the church stood up and he said, well, how much do you need to live on? How much did your husband make? And she told him how much her husband made. And he said, well, my family would be willing to give $2,000 a month towards your family. And another couple said, well, we'd be willing to give this much and that much and this much and that much. And before you know it, she had enough to live on and some extra. And she began to cry. She said, I couldn't take money from you guys. I couldn't do that. I couldn't possibly do that. And the pastor stood up and he said exactly what I told you. He said, do you believe in the gospel? Do you believe that Jesus Christ paid for your sins and has made you righteous, has made you a saint, has made you glorious? And she said, well, yes, I believe that. He said, then how can you not accept this small gift from us? And she received it with open hands. And the church did this for, I don't know, six or eight months. She found somebody new. She began dating them and she got married. And, and when they were able to get married and everything was able to go on the way it was supposed to, she stopped taking from the church and they began to give to the church. And they began to support another family who's in a similar position. Friends, that is a beautiful picture of the way this is supposed to look in the church of Jesus Christ, but very rarely does. When we give our money, we're supposed to be the kind of church that gives to help other people, not just build bigger buildings. No, that's not what we want to do. We want to be a church that both opens our hands and gives of what we have and also is willing to receive when we have a need. Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you so much for all that you blessed us with. God, it is difficult to steward it. We often uh, get in our own ways and we think we are wiser than you. Lord, would you show us how to be wise with our money? God, may we look to the gospel of Jesus Christ as our example. The example for both the rich and for the poor. That those of us who have would be willing to open our hands and give. And that those of us who do not have would be willing to open our hands and receive from you. And friends, if you would, with your eyes closed, head bowed, take about 20 seconds and say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message?
Merciful God, you have called us out of darkness so that we may proclaim your excellencies to the world around us. But we confess, God, that we pursue comfortable lives that often deny the ways of Jesus and keep us from loving our neighbors and offering mercy. God, we ask for your help as we seek to be faithful in giving and receiving in your kingdom. We can't do it without your power. We ask for your help in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, now uh, here in just a moment, I'm going to have the ushers come forward and begin the offering. Uh, I've just shared with you in a sermon about the offering that Jesus Christ has given to us, his life. And we respond by offering things back to him. We're first going to offer that which is where our heart is, which Jesus says is where our treasure is. So when we give our offering, it's an offering of praise to Jesus for what he's done for us. And then we're going to stand. We're going to offer our praises to King Jesus. And then the most important part is we're going to leave here in a little bit. And we're going to offer him our entire life, putting it on the altar, as the Apostle Paul does. So my ushers will go ahead and begin the offering. Uh, After they finish the offering, uh, Tiffany will begin singing and we'll stand and we'll offer him praises.